The second, second Bible reading comes from Isaiah chapter 39, verses 1 to 8. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then, Hezekiah, then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Thanks, Margaret. Uh, well, it's been a joy to be with you over the past year and to preach. It's always a privilege uh, to preach the gospel, but it's been a particular privilege and joy to preach it at Surrey Hills. And um, it's my joy to preach the last sermon in the series on Isaiah. Um, there will be an outline in your uh, news sheet if you want to follow along with that. Uh, but I would just encourage you to keep your Bibles open and we'll follow the story. It's a bit of a long passage, so we'll keep the story kind of fresh as it goes. Um, and then we'll uh, think about how it all applies to us. So let me, let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us week by week. Uh, thank you for the messages that we've heard on Isaiah throughout the last uh, few months. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use me now in my weakness uh, to preach uh, your word clearly and faithfully as I ought. And Father, give us all hearts to receive your word uh, with humility and faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I wonder whether your heart is um, anything like my heart. Uh, as I've been reflecting on the life of King Hezekiah this week, uh, I've been thinking about the nature of my own heart and kind of just how fickle it can sometimes be. In fact, there was this one moment uh, in my life that I still remember. It still weighs on me every time I think about it. It happened when I was in primary school. Um, you've heard a few stories of my primary school days over this year. Here's another one. Uh, in primary school, I was the fastest kid in my age bracket. It was a small pool in my little country town, but don't let that worry you. Um, whether it was cross-country or athletics, uh, I won everything racing. That is, until this new, new kid came to town, Dane Frew. And suddenly, winning became a lot harder. And that was true of this one particular cross-country event that we were both competing in. 
Now, for most of the race, Dane and I were running neck and neck with each other. But with only about 500 meters to go, I could feel myself wearing out. I could see Dane creeping ahead of me. I knew he was going to win. And so in that moment, I decided to embrace uh, a degree of humility, to own my limitations, and I called out to Dane. I said, Dane, is it okay if, could you be kind enough to let us both run across the line together? <laughs> Graciously, amazingly, he said yes. And so in that moment, he held back a bit, I caught up, and we ran towards the finish line together. Now things were great. We were on track, the finish line is in sight, both on track for shared glory, but then something in me changed. Suddenly, pride, not humility, got the better of me. As I began to notice all the cheering kids hanging off the fence, cheering Chris on. And so with the finish line now in view only metres away, I selfishly decided with one last burst of energy to bolt ahead of Dane and take the glory for myself. The only problem was, though, is that Dane was actually faster than I realised. He saw what I was doing, bolted ahead of me, and won the race himself. And I know what you're all thinking, Chris, I'm just so disappointed. I'm disappointed with myself. It's okay, I feel it too. You see, humility had me on track to glory. Pride had left me in a pit of shame. Now, looking back on that story, it still weighs on me. You see, uh, this story has always served as a reminder to me of how fickle my heart can be. One minute humble, literally the next minute proud. And I wonder whether we can actually all see a bit of that in ourselves, because that's, in fact, the attitude we see in Hezekiah this morning in our passage. So although we see him as this, in the start of this passage as the sick king, he actually has a healthy heart, humble. But then he switches and ends up being a healthy king with a sick heart, proud. So let's look at the two sides of Hezekiah's heart before we think about how all this applies to us. So first, sick king healthy heart. Now this might throw us a bit at first because Hezekiah's sick body is not the result of a sick heart. He's not being punished here and we should take note of this. When someone is sick or suffering, our first question shouldn't be, well I wonder what they did to deserve that. No, although Hezekiah has a sick body, he actually has a really healthy heart, a heart that is marked by humble dependence, which is what we see throughout this chapter. And it's what we particularly see in the first eight verses, which I've labeled on the outline, Hezekiah's salvation. I mean, just consider Hezekiah at the start of this account. At this point in history, Jerusalem is still under threat by Assyria. Uh, that salvation that... Um, the salvation the city, of the city that we read about last week, that actually hasn't happened yet at this point 
in the story. But you see, it's not only that King Hezekiah is stressed out to the max about an Assyrian invasion on his doorstep. Verse 1 tells us that in this moment he's got bigger fish to fry. He's also sick and dying. And we're not just talking about a bad case of food poisoning here. Hezekiah is in real trouble. You see, the Isaiah, the prophet of God, tells him in verse 1 that he actually needs to put all these affairs in order because he's going to die, he will not recover. Now, just imagine being told that kind of news. It's kind of like you've, you've staggered into the doctor's waiting room, you've, you're hoping for some good news, you're feeling sick as a dog, but then you just hear those devastating words that we all fear. I'm sorry, it's terminal. You're not going to make it. In fact, I strongly recommend that you make sure you've got your will in order because you actually haven't really got long to live at all. They said, what do you do in a moment like that? I mean, what hope is there? I mean, you might seek a second opinion. Maybe you, you pursue alternative treatments. But what good is all of that in Hezekiah's case? I mean, this is a prognosis from God we're talking about, not just some fallen uh, human doctor who perhaps might make a mistake. So what does Hezekiah do? Well, does he blame God for being unjust, taking him so early? Or does he decide to put on a brave face so as to look strong and in his last moments die with dignity? No, verse 2 tells us that he he turns to the sovereign God in humble dependence. Sick king, healthy heart. See, verses 2 to 3 paint the picture for us. There's Hezekiah, tears streaming down his face. God, I've followed you all my life with wholehearted devotion, verse 2. Do I really have to die in the prime of my life? Please, God, Remember me, have mercy, come to my aid. And Hezekiah's words don't fall on deaf ears, do they? He's not just speaking to the wind here. God hears his prayers. He sees his tears, verse 5, and he responds with mercy to Hezekiah's dependence. It's kind of like that moment in the cross country when I called out to Dane to be kind. And even though he didn't have to be kind, he was. But you see, this is a thousand times more remarkable. God doesn't have to save Hezekiah. He doesn't owe anyone anything. But he does. And in fact, it's not just Hezekiah that God saves by giving 15 more years to his life, verse 5, you might notice that God throws in the whole salvation of the city as well. God is so gracious that he promises to save also the city of Jerusalem from the hands of Assyria. Did you notice that in verse 6? Now, I'm sure we've all experienced moments of complete relief. You know, we think we've failed an exam, only to find out we did pretty well. Uh, we think we're going to lose our job only to find out the contract's being renewed. But imagine hearing this news. 15 more years, 15 more birthdays, 15 more years to watch your kids grow up, maybe get married. 
You've just been told that you're not going to die anymore. You and your entire city will actually be saved from death and destruction. And it all came about through simple, humble dependence on God. Sick king, healthy heart. Now, just in case Hezekiah was tempted to question whether God would come good on such a massive promise, God gives him a sign to reassure him. He makes the sun reverse its course in the sky. Did you notice in verse 8? Who else but God could pull off something like that? I mean, try it on the way home. Parents, say to your kids, I promise we're going to have fish and chips for tea tonight. And uh, just to show you how serious I am, look out the window and I'm going to make the sun go backwards and then you'll know for sure. And they'll know in that moment they're definitely having leftovers from the fridge. But you see, this is God we're talking about. Hezekiah could look at that amazing miracle and know for sure that what God said he would do, he will do. And so what does Hezekiah do in response to something that's so good and so true? Well, he sings a song. And that makes sense, doesn't it? When we are happy, we sing. Your footy team wins, you sing the anthem. It's someone's birthday, you sing happy birthday. My kids and I go off to Bundura Square to buy donuts. We're singing the whole way there. It's a happy occasion. But just think, if you've been told that you'll be raised from the brink of death and you've seen the sun miraculously reverse its course in the sky as promise of that, well, of course you're breaking out into song. So let's have a look at Hezekiah's song in verses 9 to 20. We won't cover it all in depth. We'll have a look, a bit of a broad overlook of it. Now, Hezekiah's song is made up of three parts that really tell us the story of his salvation. He sings of his life almost lost, a life saved, and now a God praised. So in the first verse of Hezekiah's song, he laments the hopelessness of having to almost die. He describes death as a robber, snatching away the rest of his years while he's still in the prime of his life, verse 10. Death was about to rob him of his relationship with God and with other people in the land of the living. Verse 11, no longer will I look on mankind or be with those who dwell in this world. We're so vulnerable in the face of death. See, it just wraps up our life, whether we're ready for it or not. That's the imagery of verse 12 there. The hopelessness of death crushes us like a lion breaking all our bones, verse 13. Uh, just prior to his death, the founder of Mac Computers, Steve Jobs, said this, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, well, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Now, I think he's kind of onto something there, and it, it taps into what Hezekiah is actually singing about in the first part of this song. You see, 
all pride, all fear of embarrassment had actually fallen away for Hezekiah. He didn't care anymore that people were seeing him weak and weeping, verse 14. He had been completely stripped back. And he had found himself left with the only thing that is truly important, the merciful and almighty God. Do you see that in verse 14? My eyes grow weak as I look to the heavens. I am troubled, O Lord, come to my aid. But you see, all hope is not lost, which is what we hear in the next two verses of Hezekiah's song, a life save, in the next verse. So look at with me at verse 15. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years. I am a saved man, and now I'm going to be a changed man. It's humility day in, day out from now on. In this part of the song, Hezekiah sings to the Lord, who brought him life in the face of death. And did you notice the way he's now thinking about his illness? God was using it for my good, he says. God wasn't being vindictive to me or just messing around. God was teaching me what real dependence is. Look at verse 17. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind my back. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's what Hezekiah comes to see. God was showing me, was shouting to me in my pain, and I heard him. God was using my pain, my illness, to rouse me to the kind of complete dependence he actually wants from all of us. And we need to hear this. Sometimes God brings us down to bring us back up again. Finally, in the third verse, Hezekiah praises God for all he has done. It's kind of like Hezekiah is saying, I just love the fact that I'm here today standing, able to praise this saving God. Verse 19, the living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. Verse 20, the Lord will save me and and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. Now that's a man who loves to sing praise to God. I mean, when was the last time you or I just stopped and thought, man, what a blessing It is to be healthy enough to join with God's people and sing Him praises today. What a privilege it is to sing to my saving God with the help of that stringed instrument over there. Thanks, Sam, and the keys and the drums and the organ. See, all Hezekiah wants to do is praise God. Hezekiah had become a very sick king but retained a healthy heart. Uh, We see this in his humble dependence on God for his salvation 
and in the song of praise that follows. Now at this point, it kind of looks like everything's going really well, that Hezekiah's got it all sorted. But that's the thing about the human heart, isn't it? It's just so fickle, often so divided. See, even a a pretty good king like Hezekiah just cannot remain consistent for too long. And in chapter 38, we're cheering on his humility. In chapter 39, we're cringing at his pride, aren't we? See, it's no longer sick king, healthy heart. It's now healthy king, sick heart. It's kind of like that moment in the cross-country where I decided to move from humility, accepting my limitations, to this proud and tragic pursuit of self-interest. It's kind of ugly. Now Hezekiah is healthy. God has healed him, but on the inside, he's rotting away. And this should serve again as a reminder to us, looks can be deceiving. Someone might look outwardly good. They've got money. They've got popularity, health, good job. Those things matter a lot to us, but it's actually what's on the inside that matters to God. So what's going on on the inside of Hezekiah in chapter 39 when these envoys from the king of Babylon arrive at his doorstep? What's going on? Well, I imagine Hezekiah is thinking, wow, Envoys from the king of Babylon, traveling halfway across the world to see me. Now, it's likely that the letters referred to in verse 1, they come bearing gifts and letters, were actually letters inviting Hezekiah to join with Babylon in a military alliance against Assyria. So again, Hezekiah is probably thinking, wow, the king of Babylon thinks I would be a good, strong ally to have in a time of war. It's kind of like that feeling you might uh, get when you're the first one picked for the soccer team in a game in the park. See, flattery can go to your head, and then it can kind of turn into a sick form of pride. And that's what I think is going on here. Hezekiah buys into the flattery You see, despite the fact that God repeatedly warns his people throughout this book against trusting in foreign alliances for their safety, look at how Hezekiah responds to these guys. Verse 2, he received them not with suspicion, now he received them gladly. Come on in. See, like a fool, he tries to prove how right they are about him. You can imagine Hezekiah saying, yes, look, come on in, come on in. See how wealthy and strong I am. Oh, you'll notice there on my left, I've got the, I've got the silver, the gold, the fine spices, the oil. And oh, just to your right there, behind that statue of myself, uh, you'll know, notice my whole armory. And just through this secret entrance, which I probably shouldn't be uh, showing you, but you'll see my entire treasury, all my collected treasures. You see, it would be a bit like if Scott Morrison was showing foreign diplomats who we all knew were probably spies, if he was showing them the reserve bank's underground vault, maybe even slipping a password here and there. 
See, only someone who is completely taken up with pride makes this blunder. In pride, Hezekiah shows off all his riches. You notice God's not even getting a mention here. God doesn't get any praise, no acknowledgement. And just as one act of humility brought great blessing in chapter 38, so one act of pride now brings great condemnation in chapter 39. Isaiah tells Hezekiah that because of his actions, God's judgment's coming. All that stuff you, you love so much, it's all going to Babylon, verse 6. Even your own great-grandkids will end up becoming eunuchs in the king of Babylon's palace, verse 7. This is like the moment in the cross-country where Dane Frew saw what I was up to and he made sure that my shameful pride would not be successful. Hezekiah is condemned for his pride here. See, imagine being told that your grandkids are going to become slaves in a foreign country because of your sin. I mean, you'd be devastated, wouldn't you? But this is how sick Hezekiah's heart is at the end of this chapter. Even after hearing that news, he still only thinks about himself. Do you see that in verse 8? He starts off by saying the right things, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. But then we get the sneak preview into where his heart's at. For he thought, there will be peace and, and security in my lifetime. I mean, that kind of apathy, that lovelessness for your own flesh and blood is breathtaking. Healthy king, sick heart. And I don't know about you, but I, I find this whole story somewhat disappointing. I mean, Hezekiah was so humble last week. You remember the sermon? And he's so humble for the first part of this week. But then this, chapter 39, bursts on the scene, and we've got ourselves a divided king. But you see, here's the really confronting uh, part of this passage. Hezekiah is the divided king that we are so much like. And you see, I suspect if we're honest with ourselves, we will actually see a lot of him in us, which is the first part of the application. You see, one minute humble, the next minute proud. I mean, I've given you an example of, uh, from my childhood, but, you know, let's be honest. We don't, always we don't always change that much when we become adults, really. Uh, I'll give you another example then, one where I'm an adult. Uh, one, uh, take, for example, my studies. See, one moment with my studies at college, I could be really humble before God, coming to Him in prayer saying, Lord, help me with this assignment. Help me with this talk. I, I'm feeling under the pump, Lord. I don't feel like I've got it in me. I know all my gifts and abilities have come from you. Please, I need your help, or I'm really stuck. Now, let's say I, I get a good mark. 
or I get some good feedback on a talk, oh, the temptation is always there, always there to think, man, turns out I am smarter than I thought. Should probably tell Ruth what a good theologian she's married to. You see, just like Hezekiah, pride is always so close following behind humility, isn't it? Always that divided heart lurking in the background. And I just wonder whether you've seen this divided heart popping up in your life. Even in the last week or two. Sometimes it pops up in those little conflicts in marriage, doesn't it? Or in our relationships with each other. One day, you're prepared to own your hurtful words that you've said. You're prepared to seek forgiveness from your spouse or your friend in humility. But the next moment, well, you've got your proud heart on. You're unwilling to back down. You're unwilling to show any grace. But sometimes it pops up in our conversations with other Christians we have after, after church. You know, one week someone tells you about a particular sin they're struggling with and your heart goes out for them. In humility, you think, there but for the grace of God, go I, I'm going to pray for this person. But then the next week, oh, you hear a similar story, maybe from someone else, and you think, actually feeling a bit better about myself right now because at least I know I'm a bit better than this person. Sometimes it happens in the transitions of life. Take, for example, student to full-time worker. Maybe as students, we've, we've trusted God. We've happily given to him out of our limited income. Oh, but then as a full-time worker, we think, No, no, I've worked hard for my money. It's my money. I can't give away too much. I deserve this or that. You see, with a little self-reflection, it's not hard to see how similar we are to Hezekiah. And that should make us feel somewhat uneasy. I mean, left to ourselves with these kind of divided hearts, what hope do we have before a holy God who judges us by our hearts, who sees our hearts for what they are. And you see, this is the struggle that the Apostle Paul taps into in Romans chapter 7, you might remember, when he's talking about that tension between wanting to do what is right, but often doing what is wrong. You might remember the conclusion he came to, what a wretched man I am. Verse 24, Who will rescue me from this body of death? You see, it's hard to look directly at our fickle hearts because they're not pretty. I mean, we're often not happy with them. And most of the time, we sense God isn't happy with them. And the reality is, He is not happy with them. He says throughout His words that we will be judged for our divided hearts, our hearts that turn away from him. But you see, here is the good news. The God who shows great mercy to Hezekiah is the same God who shows greater mercy to us in his son. You see, in his mercy, God has sent his son to save us from the eternal consequences of our divided and fickle hearts. 
Jesus is the devoted king that we need. See, unlike Hezekiah, Jesus didn't live with a divided heart. No, it was humility all the way, never pride. In fact, Jesus' heart was so humble, so devoted to doing God's will, that he even was willing to pay the price on the cross, the price for our divided hearts. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, but you too know that uncomfortable tension within your hearts that something's wrong, make today the day that you choose to know and follow Jesus. Because he is the only one that can bring forgiveness that your fickle heart needs. And you see, in raising Jesus to life, God has given us a sure sign that if we believe in Jesus, we too will be raised to life. We too will be with God forever. You see, with Jesus, it's not just 15 more years of this life, with all the sort of pain and suffering that goes along with it. No, it's an eternity in the presence of God with hearts that are no longer divided and bodies that no longer get sick. Hezekiah was told to look at the sun in the sky and have confidence in God's promises. We are told now to look at God's son on the cross and have confidence in God's promise to save us. See, if God was willing to give us his son, we have every reason to trust him. See, the cross helps us to live devoted rather than divided lives. The cross kills all pride. The cross says we can't save ourselves. It reminds us that we depend on God entirely. You see, we'll never have perfectly devoted hearts this side of heaven. But as we keep the cross firmly in our gaze, the pride in our hearts will start to die bit by bit. I'll just close uh, with a brief illustration from the attitude that was present uh, in our senior minister back in the former church that I came from. So years ago, we were uh, meeting in a local community hall. And each week required this lengthy setup and then pack-up process. And each week our pastor would be one of the last people left in the building, just going up and down, sweeping the whole floors. Each week, there he'd be with this big, orange, scissor-like broom. Very occasionally, though, some visitors would would stick around and they'd, they'd see our pastor doing this, And they would remark to him that they were surprised to see the senior minister doing such kind of menial work. And his usual response was was always a great one. He would say, look, if my saviour was willing to die on a cross for my sins, I think the least I can do is sweep the floor of this hall as service to his people. You see, the, the cross kills pride and brings humility 
to every aspect of our lives. We don't need to be the most distinguished. We don't need to be the fastest in a cross country. We don't need to be the richest. We don't need to be the one who has the most admirers. What we really need is for our devoted king to fix the problem of our divided hearts. And he has done that. Let's pray.